Yeah, I mean, they kind of you know, said that you're really good against righties and we're going to try to use you against as many righties as possible. Um, so I knew that I just need to throw my sinker in the zone. Um, they were going to not necessarily protect me, but they were going to put me in the best situation possible to face as many righties as possible. If I throw my sinker in the zone, then I'll probably have success. Hey, everybody, it's Justin Shackle. Welcome you to episode 20 of Tone the Slab Pitching with David Cohn, where we try to make sense of the beautiful art of pitching every single show. And we do it with David Cohn, the five-time World Series champion, the signing award winner, and master researcher James Smythe, as well as myself. And we, we cover a lot of topics on this week's show. We are back in it. After having last week off, we also talked to a relief pitcher whom many in the industry feel that is poised for a breakout year, and that's New York Yankees reliever Clay Holmes. But let's begin with the opener right off the top of this week's episode. David, you were here. We know that you and your family suffered a loss with the passing of your father, Ed, and you know we, we're glad to see you here. Glad to see you back uh, back in your home in Florida. We love you, man. Sending you a lot of strength and love to your family. And, hey, the floor is yours here for the opener. Yeah, you know, I just wanted to touch on that and want to thank you guys. Thank, thanks to, to everybody for the, for the support. Uh, you know, it's always a tough thing when you, when you lose somebody so close. And, you know, my dad taught me how to pitch. He was my first coach, first and best coach uh, back in Little League. So I just kind of wanted to, to say that that support throughout uh, from everybody Yankee fans is much, much appreciated, much needed at that point in time. And a shout out and a thank you to all the baseball dads out there who did the same thing my dad did. My dad worked a graveyard shift in a meat packing plant for, for a lot of years. Uh, but yeah, when he got home, he was always ready to go out and play catch in the backyard with his young son who was, who was tugging at him saying, come on, dad, let's go let's play catch. Come on, teach me, teach me. So, you know, uh, just know that it's, it's much appreciated and, you know, you're helping to grow the game. All, all the mothers and fathers and parents, especially dads that are out there coaching, uh, thank you. Thank you from one kid a long time ago who, who benefited from a father who was like that. So, you know, that, that, that's it. Just simp, simp, a simple thank you for the support and a thank you to, to all the baseball dads out there. Very lovely. Very, very nice. Right to, uh, right to the point, too. And, and I think it, the message is received well from from fathers because i mean i don't have kids yet but obviously you want to do right by them you think about it especially at you know the age that maybe uh, james i don't know james i don't know what your plans are here in life maybe we're getting a little too deep here in the weeds but um my point is you know you you have that responsibility that innate responsibility that kind of tugs at you when you you know you have a child and you just want to see them do well and from everything that Baseball fans, specifically Yankee fans, like you were talking about, David, everything that we have seen on the surface or heard from you, your father did it as well as anyone would want their dad to do it. So um, we, you know, we obviously send our condolences again to you and the rest of the Cone family. And like we said, we love you, man. We love obviously doing this. And we know that a lot of your wisdom came from from your dad. So um Again, we just uh, express our condolences to you and the family. No, much appreciated. You know, he was uh, he was that guy. He was that guy that made sure that he passed it on. You mm -hmm. know, and that's how we keep this game going. That's how we grow the game of baseball. Is that you just you're there. You take your kid to the games. You take your kid to Yankee Stadium if you're in New York or wherever you are across the country. If you can get to a major league game or a minor league game or a college game or a high school game, you're there. 
And uh, to me, that's the most important thing. You're passing on the tradition. And, and just I'll, I'll close with this on this topic. You know, when I threw my perfect game, the, the stories I hear from fathers and mothers really resonated with me that, that it was more about them being together and sharing that moment together. You know, where hey, I was with my grandfather, I was with my father, you know, on the final out. And we shared that moment together, whether that was a perfect game or a World Series game or any big moment in baseball that you share that moment together. That's uh, a big deal. And, uh, you know, they, I can't I can't thank my father enough for what he did for me. And as I said before, to everybody out there, all the parents out there that are doing that for their kids. Thank you. It's, it's, it's much appreciated. And we take a look at what's on the table here for this week's pod. And one of the guys that we were having on, thankfully for this week, is, is a guy who as a kid, even though he grew up in the deep south, he grew up in southeast Alabama, Slocum, Alabama. Clay Holmes had a bunch of Yankee posters on his bedroom wall. I mean, this is deep Braves country. You, you're watching the Braves on TBS. You're watching the Chicago Cubs on WGN. But Clay Holmes, now a Yankees reliever, he was traded to the Yankees from the Pirates in the middle of the 2021 season. He thrived in the New York bullpen. He had a lot of uh, Yankee memorabilia in his room. I thought that was pretty cool to, to learn here as we had Clay on. Yeah, he, you know, he's a really thoughtful guy. What an interesting guest, some thoughtful answers. He very much understands analytics and some of the new toys to play with and improve. But the, the flip side of that was his success was really predicated on simplifying his approach. One grip, have the catcher set up in the same spot, pound that sinker over and over again, find the strike zone with it, dominate the strike zone with that one pitch, mix in a slider, he kind of can the curveball, can the changeup, can the four seamer, and that approach just was like a light bulb went off in his head uh, in terms of not only his how he's going to go about it, but the success. Really, kind of just one outing after the other got better and better, and his confidence grew and grew. And you know, I, I just found that fascinating. And and this is not a guy who's who's uh, uh, you know not thinking about what he's doing or not. Uh, a growth mentality guy who went to Matt Blake and said, show me all the numbers. I want to see everything. And I want to, I want to follow that after every outing, which he does. But th that was the interesting part with me is not getting jammed up with all that information by understanding that information, but at the same time, simplifying your approach to me, that's the magic. That's sort of the magic. Uh, uh, the secret sauce, I guess is, is the proper term for him is he's understanding the analytics, but also, you know, simplifying things and, uh, and making it work for you. So I, I found it fascinating. I, th I thought, you know, not only his success last year, but he's a great guest and a great guy to talk to. You know, I learned a lot just, just listening to him as well. Yeah, so Clay Holmes was traded to the Yankees in late July of 2021. And I think at the time of the trade, he was one of the most often used relievers in major league baseball, but the Yankees were kind of in a sticky spot. They were very much an average team nearing the trade deadline and they were kind of expected to make a big move if they were going to go for it. And one of the first moves they made was trading for Clay Holmes, a guy with a sub five of ERA and a lot of people out in the Yankees Twitter land, you know, they looked at the surface numbers. They hated the move. James, I'm wondering from what you do on a day to day level with the Yankees broadcast on yes. When you first saw that trade, what, came to mind right away about what the Yankees were acquiring in Clay Holmes? Well, there were some things you see the difference between his ERA 
which was 493 and his FIP and some of the other underlying things, some of the stat cast measurements that we get into in the interview with Clay that suggest, oh, well, maybe he's not a true talent 493 ERA pitcher. And maybe the Yankees have uh, traded for someone that there's an opportunity to grow or improve with a change of scenery. I don't think, I don't know, any anybody in their you know, wildest dreams would have thought uh, he'd be putting up a, a 161 ERA the whole rest of the season. But there there was some promising things in there, and, and we get into it with, with his sinker um, and, and, and the movement on, on his sinker with the stat cast numbers, uh, even some of the contact, quality of contact numbers against his pitches in the top 5% of all major league pitchers in both barrel percentage, how often did the batter square it off, and expected slugging. So that's, again, weak contact, a lot of ground balls, 70% ground ball rate. There, there, there's a shell there. They say, okay, well, there's, there's a lot of good stuff here. So it's not just your run-of-the-mill 5 ERA pitcher. And, and, and Clay was able to, to improve, and, and the Yankees were able to tap into that. So we had uh, one of the great breakouts of the 2021 season. It was the latter half of the season, and I think it's a big reason why Clay Holmes' name is on a lot of these lists. If you read uh, guys trying to predict which relievers are going to break out, right? Which relievers are the guys that you should be focusing on? Who's going to be the Garrett Whitlock or the Emmanuel Classe of 2022? And we're, you know, we're trying to look smart here. We're trying to identify Clay Holmes. And I think judging from the sample size that he served up at the end of 2021, there's enough there to predict some really good things coming up in uh, 2022. So without further ado, Yankees reliever Clay Holmes, our guest this week here on Toe in the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. Clay, thanks so much for taking some time with us here at, at a really, hey, let's just say, a really weird time for baseball players. We're recording this on uh, Monday afternoon, February 21st and right now as we record there is a negotiating session going on between the league and the players union but it's obviously delayed the start of spring training I think right now you would probably be wrapping up a training session in Yankee spring training obviously that's not happening so what is the workout routine like these days for you are you with fellow Yankee teammates are you guys working out together give us an update on that yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, big fan of, uh, of just the show and pitching. I've listened to some episodes, so uh, I'm excited just to talk to pitching with you guys. Um, nice. Thanks again for having me on. Um, yeah, I think uh, probably the the people that's wanting this lockout in the most is um, I'm facing some high school hitters right now, so I'm sure they're ready for me to go pick on somebody my own size. Um, so I'm, I'm down here in Tampa. Um, uh, so I've, you know, been able to throw outside, um, been get off the mound and seeing some, some hitters in the box. Um, there's a few Yankee guys down here that I'm able to work out with, um, JMO's down here, uh, some guys at the facility that we're working out with. So, um, it's been good. Um, uh, just kind of staying in kind of the, um, same routine that I would normally be on. I'm not really changing much. So I feel like I'm ready. Um, excited to, to get going whenever it is. So how hard are you going against these high school hitters? Are you, are you going easy or are you, are you fully ramped up here? <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. My velo's actually been um, pretty good for like this time of the year. I've been probably 95, 97. So they're seeing kind of the real deal. Um, <laughs> so it's been fun. I, you know, I just kind of wanted to see a hitter in the box. Um, 
especially this time of the year. Um, so it's been fun. You know, I've been telling what's coming, so it kind of makes it you know, somewhat, you know, a little bit more of a level playing field, but uh, it's been good. You know, Clay, Clay, what, what is, you know, I got to get this out of the way, but yeah, a little on the humorous side, but what is it about all these Pittsburgh pirates that leave Pittsburgh and go and deal everywhere else they go? I mean, the list you're on the long list now. I mean, when you came over from Pittsburgh last year and put on that Yankee uniform. It seems to be a, a fun topic to talk about um, because yeah, there's somewhat of a trend there. Um, but, you know, I wish I could say there was one thing, but uh, I don't really know if it's the case. I mean, obviously there's been you know, a lot of talent there at Pittsburgh. Um, and, you know, for some reason, things kind of, I don't know if it's the timing, um, if you could say, you know, if we'd stay in Pittsburgh a little longer, the same thing would have happened or if it's the change of scenery. I think everybody's kind of unique in that situation. Um, but, but yeah, there's been, a, um, I guess a kind of running list now where some guys are finding some success elsewhere. So, um, I guess I'm, I guess I would say I'm happy to be on the list, but, uh, you know, I wish you kind of found some success earlier, but I'm definitely thankful for the opportunity there in New York. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not trying to slam the pirates. I think, I think you're right. There is a, <laughs> there's a lot of talent there and you know yeah. they've drafted highly for several mm-hmm. years in a row. And, you know, certainly I know you signed out of high school, I guess back to the beginning, the question I have, I always ask guys this, you know, cause I, I signed out of high school and, and I had a chance to go to college and it's a tough decision. So taking you back to the days when you had a, Scholarship at the University of Auburn kind of goes down to the wire for you. And then, you know, you're a ninth round pick. And then, you know, I guess they showed you the money a little bit. Or I know that had to be a difficult conversation with, you know, with your advisors or your family. Uh, can you take us back there and give us a little insight into that decision making? Yeah. Um, you know, this was back before the draft change where the slot really become a thing. Um, and so for me, I mean, I come from. I mean, kind of a, a town, even a family where not much like professional or even collegiate baseball background, a very small town. Um, so the process was pretty new. There was a couple of people that we knew that kind of, you know, helped us kind of navigate some things. But it was one of the things where we were kind of learning as we went. Um, and then my senior year, uh, stuff with scouts, uh, pro scouts started to pick up. Um, and it kind of come to a point where um, I, I valued the, you know, the education, um, so did my family. So um, I, I think for us, it was more of a thing where um, wasn't so much. Uh, we we went kind of like a money route, where it was like you know if we're able to get this amount, uh, this much of money. We kind of set the number before the draft, um, then I'll sign. If not, then I'm going to college. Um, pretty kind of straightforward thing where um, it's kind of black and white, and that kind of you know some teams kind of fell off of that, but. Uh, um, that's kind of, you know, how I took the approach going into the draft and Pittsburgh took me in the ninth round, um, kind of knowing my situation before, I mean, nothing really changed for me. They said, you know, if this is going to happen, it's going to happen toward the, uh, you know, more toward the deadline, just because the amount of money in the ninth round and, um, this type of thing. So in the meantime, I went to Auburn that summer, uh, took some classes, um, was just kind of there working out. And then, um, Pittsburgh kind of called, you know, about a week before the deadline saying, Hey, we want to start talking about this and um, whatnot. And uh, kind of flew up there, you know, the day before the deadline and um, ended up offering what I wanted. And I guess the rest is history. Have you taken any more classes? What were you studying? (laughs) Uh, It's kind of a joke. Uh, So my classes that summer were life skills and theater. Um, So, uh, and that's the theater class was 
yeah, yeah. The theater class was all baseball and football guys. So uh, the theater, I mean, I just remember the teacher saying, you know, we'll make this painless as possible for you guys, but I just need a little bit of effort. Um, so not much of a, um, uh, a real experience at college, I would say. <laughs> well, from what we've heard, and we've heard it from Jamison Tyone, who obviously mm-hmm. was with the Pirates. He was a guest here on Tone the Slab. And we've, you know, heard it once you were acquired by the Yankees. You are pretty in tune with some of the quantitative analysis that goes around in, in research and development and in a baseball front office. You're very in tune to some with some of these metrics. James, what are some numbers from the second half of 2021 that Clay put up that you think could maybe open up his eyes or maybe surprise him? Well, the big story this season was the, on the surface, just the ERA, 493 with Pittsburgh. There's some things suggesting maybe a little bad luck there. But then 161 ERA after the trade with the Yankees, off the charts, one of the best relievers in the game down the stretch. Just a couple of things that jumped out at me. The decrease in walk rate and the increase in strikeout rate. That's about as good as you could ask for, right? So career with Pittsburgh, a 15% walk rate down to just 4% with the Yankees. And the average is around eight. So only four walks out of 103 batters faced with the Yankees. And the strikeout rate jumping from around league average at 22% up to 33 And so looking a little deeper, seeing the, the amount of pitches in the zone. First three seasons with Pittsburgh, 45%. Then last year, still with Pittsburgh before the trade up to 50%. And then with the Yankees, 55. Was that something, is that something that, do you feel that you were gaining more control or was it more of a, an attack the zone type of philosophy? What, what happened there? Yeah, so I think um, just kind of, you know, on the surface, um, when I you know, got traded over, they said, obviously your sinker is really good. Um, which, you know, they kind of showed me some things that, you know, I've had some people in the past um, tell me that, but it's like, just, they showed me some things to reinforce that and how good I've been against righties. Um, And basically that, you know, I can throw my sinker and I'll be okay. Uh, So I think that for one, instilled a little bit of confidence, but um, I think something that really helped for me, you know, personally was having the catcher just set up in one spot. Um, You know, you know, Britt kind of, Britton kind of talked about this too, but, and it's kind of got me in trouble in the past is sometimes I'll feel like I have like three different sinkers, like one that'll go like lateral, one that goes maybe straight down and then the combination of both where you kind of have the sink and the run. Um, and sometimes when you, I'll get caught like trying to make an adjustment from pitch to pitch. So like, so, you know, trying to make an adjustment off this pitch. Um, and then you kind of lead, you know, down a road where, you know, you end up making too many adjustments where you end up somewhere you don't want to be. For me, it was like, I'm going to try to throw the same pitch, no matter what happened to pitch before in the same spot. And if it goes where I you know, want it, then good. If not, then I'm going to try to do the same thing. And instead of trying to adjust from pitch to pitch, I just went to saying, you know what, I'm going to try to throw this pitch in the same spot, start in the same spot. If it doesn't do what I want to do, that's fine. I'm just going to try to do it again. And instead of kind of adjusting, off of the pitch before. I think that's something that really kind of started to lock that sinker in. Um, and then I started throwing it more, which I, you know, you think you can say that that probably helped just reaffirm the release, the release point. Um, didn't throw my curveball as much. Um, 
so there's some things that kind of just started building off that and some was intentional some maybe not so intentional but that's kind of things how it started to snowball um the next thing i know i mean the sinker was the most consistent it's ever been um and i was throwing it you know more than i ever have the uh the pitch usage rate on that sinker Mm -hmm. before the trade uh last year 51 percent with the pirates 73 percent of the time with the yankees so definitely jacking that uh, usage rate up yeah i mean they kind of you know said that you're really good against righties and we're going to try to use you against as many righties as possible um so i knew that i just need to throw my sinker in the zone um they were going to not necessarily protect me but they were going to put me in the best situation possible to face as many righties as possible and if i throw my sinker in the zone then i'll probably have success i mean that's kind of how things started um and then when you start to have a little more consistent success things just kind of start building um and you know next thing you know you're you can start trying to do a little bit more but it's that foundation of um you know of just being in the zone first and i kind of you know, love that, that simplistic explanation there you know in an age where we have all this data all these um, mm-hmm. toys to play with and analytics mm-hmm. that you had the catcher set up in one spot and you just pounded that sinker and gained confidence uh, as you went along and and you're right just keep trying to do the simplified thing over and over again and you just own the strike zone and not only own the strike zone your velocity ticked up as well is is there something on the training side that you did that allowed you to, to go a couple ticks up in your velocity i mean previously a couple of years ago you were in you're around 94 miles an hour last year 96 with a sinker with a demon sinker that dropped off the table at times so well, you know what what in your training uh, that helped you increase your velocity as well Yeah, I th- so um, with the, I think just throwing it over and over and finding that consistent release, there started to become a little bit more freedom um, kind of within the delivery. And I think that just naturally, I started to see more of the top end velocity. I mean, I've always, you know, back to 2017 and 18, you know, I threw, I would get up to 99, you know, then, but there was just a bigger range. Um, and I think that range has started to really narrow where I was just sitting at that top end versus, you know, having, you know, 92, 93, and then be able to, you know, throw a 97, 98. Um, the more my body just got comfortable doing the same thing over and over, um, that freedom within the delivery, you know, started to come. And the, I think the top end velocity become a little bit more natural um, and it came a little easier versus, you know, no, trying to That's a great to, lesson for young pitchers right there. You know, the simplified approach, mm-hmm. free of, frees <laughs> up your delivery and good things happen, including velocity, movement, and control. I love Love all those things. That's a good lesson for young pitchers right there who, who listen to this podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think the Yankees easily identified the fact that you do really well against righties. You proved it too within your performances over the last two plus months of the season. But I did read in a recent article, I believe it was Brendan Cuddy, who's a great Yankees beat writer, that one of your goals, I guess, is to get better against lefty hitters in in 2022. So what are the first steps toward getting better against a left-hander for you? Yeah, I I can talk, kind of talk you through my thought process a little bit. Um, So obviously like we know, like my sinker usage went way up, um, stopped throwing my curveball really totally and started using the slider. We can argue it's like, and it had really good success. It's like, well, why do anything different? Um, that worked, why change, you know, and there could be truth to that, you know, 
And so it's like there is some risk of trying to maybe add a pitch. Is the risk worth the reward? Um, so that's kind of what I've been trying to walk through is uh, like was just the simplicity of one my pitch arsenal. Was that a reason for my success? Um, it, would it be risky to add another pitch? Um, anyways, you know, I think that there is um, – there would be value of basically having maybe something else I can show left-handed batter um, when needed. It probably wouldn't affect my, you know, total arsenal. Um, but, like, I've been kind of messing around with it, either a change-up or obviously it's kind of get popular now is um, – just kind of the sweeper slider, the seam shift wake slider, um, trying and, you know, throws it. Um, so I've been messing around with that. Obviously his slider, I mean, there's a lot of people that throw it now, but obviously his was really good this year. Um, and he just added it. Um, so I think that's kind of a model would be like, you know, is, is that something I want to go after? Um, so I've been kind of messing around with that, um, a little bit and it's been pretty good so far on the track, man. And it's been really good to high school hitters, but, um, (laughs) looking forward to some new hitters to kind of just see how, how it plays. Um, and I think as long as the consistency plays, um, as far as, you know, with my sinker and doesn't mess with that, um, it's something that, um, one of those two pitches I'll probably try to add just to, you know, for a different look, um, for either timing or just create more of a horizontal I'm stop split, you right uh, there. We have a first reference on our podcast from the seam shifted wake. So it's one of my favorite topics, you know, I spent some time with Dr. Barton Smith at Utah state <laughs> explaining it to me. And I, I got a little bit of a grasp to it, but the first time I've heard it used with the slider. Interesting. So is there yeah. some tweak in your grip that allows you to see, mm-hmm. you know, different types of movement with your slider that you can sort of quantify with the metrics? Um, yeah. So it's, uh, I mean, there's some, some guys throwing it now. Um, you can see like some guys grips, like I think you can go on, um, I think pitching ninja has tried and grip out, but it's just kind of like a, um, it's honestly pretty similar to the two seam grip, um, like a sinker, but you're, you're throwing it like a curveball. So it's a split grip, basically curveball on top of the seams. Um, and you're kind of just throwing in a way to create, you know, to move the axis where you basically just create that you're using the seam to create more uh, horizontal movement this way versus them kind of pushing it that way. Um, and so, I mean, some guys have had, you know, a lot of success with it. Obviously, I mean, trying and slider this past year was, uh, I mean, the numbers are pretty ridiculous. So, um, and there's, you know, some other guys, I think with the Yankees that throw it, um, that have had success with it. So it's a, um, it's a good pitch and it's something that, you know, I think that could, you know, if I can throw a slider with, you know, 16, you know, negative 16 inches of horizontal with a sinker that goes the other way, you know, 17 to 19, it just could add, you know, a really, um, just more uncomfortable bat, you know, just because I have something that can go the other way just as much. So seam shift wake, I think, is like one of these uh, avant-garde pitching terms. I, I, you know, I think a lot of people are going to hear more in 2022. Mm-hmm. Starting to read more about it. I know if you break down the numbers, there's a nice pattern there within the Yankees organization. David, just a quick rewind to try and explain wake seam shift wake to to the listeners. What can you? If we're going to the David School, uh, David Cohn School of pitching here. <laughs> How can Professor well, we Cohn break Professor it down Barton in the most Smith, simplest Dr. terms? Dr. Barton Smith to explain it properly the way it was explained to me. Obviously, <laughs> the ball traveling to home plate, it's like a dog sticking his head out the window. You know, the only the wind hits him in the face, right? Not on the back. So where the seam is on the front of the baseball is the key. And that's what Clay's talking about. Sort of a two-seam grip, which ironically is how I threw my slider all those years. I learned how to throw a two-seam fastball 
and I would just tweak it on the inside of the seams to throw a slider. And then I would split it to throw a splitter. So it was a real simplified grip management issue for me throughout my career. Really. I never really, really changed. So I was always curious about sometimes I would get some sliders that would take off and make a left-hand turn. And that was seam shifted wake. It's about where the seams on the front of the ball, if you can tweak your grip Mm -hmm. and that, that where the seam is, if it's in the middle of the baseball or certainly positioned in the right spot, that that creates drag sort of like, as I explained before, like the dog in his ears flapping out the window when the wind hits him in the face, it's the same thing with the seams on the front of the baseball that that can create the drag that can create sort of extra movement or more movement than, than you normally would get because of the position on the seams on the front of the baseball as a traveling home plate. And that's what Clay's talking about in terms of getting instant feedback as you're tweaking your grips, working on the side, using all the metrics, all the machines that you have, the high-speed cameras, the Repsoto machines can kind of quantify exactly uh, what you're trying to do and get that kind of a break. And, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a phenomenon, the seam shifted wake, but it's basically the seams and the wind and, and uh, how, how the seams affect the movement on the baseball. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Barton Smith. Um, yeah. I've had some interaction with him. Jared Hughes actually introduced me to him. Um, and you talk, uh, you know, I've listened to some podcast episodes of just like blending the old school and the new school. Now they both can be um, very beneficial. So, I mean, so I've worked with Barton some and I know him. And I say there's probably been two, two times kind of in my career where people have like really just kind of instilled some confidence in me uh, with my sinker. Um, and I'll kind of share those. The first one, so I threw a sinker my whole life, or that's just how I gripped the baseball as a two seam. Um, when I was drafted, that was taken away. In 2016, I'm um, in double A. Um, they basically said, you know, didn't you used to throw a you know, sinker? I said, sure. And this was like a bullpen in the middle of the season. And then they said, well, let's try it out. It was good. And I threw it for the rest of the year. Um, that's kind of when I started throwing the sinker again. But it was that next spring training during live BPs. Um, it was my first big league spring training. And Grady Little was behind um, the cage watching. And I'll never forget, he came up to me afterwards and he said, uh, that's probably the, the best sinker I've seen since Derek Lowe. Um, I said, man, I'll, uh, I'll kind of chew on this and think about that. Um, but I just remember, just always remember that and the kind of confidence that instilled. Um, and then fast forward to this year, my, it was one of my first few outings against the Reds. I gave up like five runs um, in like point one of an inning. Terrible outing. Um, just kind of tough to sit on. But Barton was you know, one guy to text me after the outing. And he basically said, you know, I, uh, it's not your sinker. You don't have to worry about your sinker. You know, I don't really know what happened, what's going on, but your sinker is really good. The numbers are really good and you can trust it. I'll just never forget that, you know, especially in a time where, you know, you have a rough outing. There's a lot of things to, you want to look at, you know, the bad things you did or this and that. He's basically like, you know, here's something that you can trust, you know, and you can, you can throw it and it's really good. I trusted him because of the knowledge and obviously that he, he cared. Um, and there's a two guys with very different backgrounds, you know, one that's just a baseball lifer, a guy, you know, really respect he's awesome guy. And a guy that, um, is really good with numbers that loves baseball. Um, but they both have, you know, value to add. And I think that's kind of, um, you know, very extreme cases of kind of guys that have impacted me with my sinker. Um, but great. Completely Love different that example. It's so true. It really is. If you have an open mm-hmm. mind. Yeah. You have a growth mentality mm-hmm. and then, then you're open to those sorts of suggestions from different, different sources, completely yeah. opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really cool. And, and I, it's so awesome. We're gaining such a vast knowledge of your sinker here. So this would be great insight to get here. Now that you've been in the Yankee bullpen, you have an idea of what everyone in there is like. What do you think separates your sinker from Jonathan Loisica's sinker or uh, Joely Rodriguez's sinker? What separates all those pitches, even though they're the same? Yeah, there's um... – you can say they're the same, but I think something that's very overlooked, um, it's kind of the approach angle that people throw with. I think something that makes my sinker really good and also, you know, get a lot of ground balls, even when it's maybe not down in the zone, it's just because of my approach angle. I still throw from a pretty steep angle with a sink. Um, and, I mean, just seeing – it could be a sinker, but, you know, why well, is because I'm not exact sure about his numbers on it, but he's, he has, you know, a lot of arm side run his angle is probably a little different than mine. Um, and so just like the way the angles they come in and with the movement, you pair those two things and it could be a completely different look for a hitter. Um, even though from the eye, say, you know, a righty throwing sinker, they can still look pretty different. Um, you know, in my opinion, I've never been in the box against, you know, I have been in the box a couple of times against some sinker ballers. Um, but you know, they probably know a lot better than I do, but I don't, I don't think that, uh, you can just make the assumption that they're all the same. So true. You know, I, I think we used to call it the difference between a two-seam fastball and a sinker. I mean, you have a true sinker. Derek Lowe had a true sinker. A lot of guys call their two-seamer sinkers, but they run. Mm-hmm. You know, they're more arm-side run. And, I mean, that's, that's nothing against that. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Lewis got throwing 99 miles an hour with incredible run and tight little movement on it. it, it it's a great pitch for him. But, you know, Clay has a true sinker. I mean, the depth is so much better. I think James gave us – can give us more numbers on that, but I think it was close to five inches above average of change of direction down vertical movement that to me classifies that as a true sinker. And I know I'm a little bit of a stickler. I'm a former pitcher. Like that, that's a two seamer. That's not a sinker. That's, that's a runner, you know? And then, and then I think uh, the way Clay described it earlier really rung a bell with me in terms of, you know, he had three different sinkers into one and he simplified things now he has that demon sinker going straight down whenever he wants it if he misses with it let's do it again let's not think too much let's let's not overthink this let's let's just pound that sinker down and he's got natural life on it natural sink his angle of attack i think it's a great point he uses his leverage his height uh you know so i i see loisiga you know uh throwing uh you know more of a runner more of an arm side runner type type of a two-seam fastball a power two-seam fastball as opposed to a true sinker that, that Clay Holmes and, and Derek Lowe featured. Yeah, the uh, looking at the StatCast numbers, uh, Clay's sinker averages around 24 inches a drop, which is just a tick under five inches, 4.7 inches better than a league average sinker. So that's going to fall off the table a lot more, and it's right up there with any of the elite uh, sinkers or two seamers in the game. It is a true sinker. It's awesome. Um, yeah, that's and- that's something I kind of keep track of too. Like you know, during the season, um, I, I enjoy like going after my outings and just looking at the numbers, you know, the vertical and the horizontal on them, and just kind of pairing. Okay, that felt pretty good. Let's kind of just see what the numbers say. And things kind of match up to kind of what I felt. You know, that one kind of felt that felt right. Let's see what it looked like. You know, the numbers and swing and the stuff. And it's like okay that's the feeling I need to recreate or kind of keep going with, you know, and just to kind of keep that, keep you online of like the right feeling and kind of just pair that to, you know, 
what the you stack know, Clay, I mentioned before, you know, that there's this old, uh, you know, kind of this old romantic, you know, notion of the Yankees that you know, there's no names on the back of the uniforms. And that suddenly you put on the pinstripes and you kind of light up a little bit that the culture's different. Did you feel that when you, when you came over to the Yankees, you put on that uniform for the first time, the clubhouse dynamic. Uh, can you explain the, you know, how different that was for you from, from, you know, the previous clubhouses you've been in? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's a real thing. I mean, it's, I kind of went from one extreme to the other, um, but um, you know, it's, it just kind of, it just felt like you were putting on the Yankees uniform and even as a professional player, um, you know, that's it's still a very real thing, you know, and I think uh, it was something that I've, I've always kind of, you know, admired the Yankees, you know, even growing up in the South and the Braves country, you know, I still had some, some Yankee stuff in my room. Um, so it was, it was everything I kind of expected and, just kind of going in and knowing that, you know, we're you know playing for the postseason um, kind of with the Yankees and just kind of gives you that drive. It's like, I don't know, I kind of went in. It kind of puts your mentality in a more spot. Like, you know what, like, it's not going to be me. I'm not going to be the reason why we don't do well or get in the postseason. You know, I'm going to do my part. And I think that mentality of just kind of, you know, you're in it for something a little more than just, you know, being in the big leagues. And I think that um, – it just really hit home with me and it was uh, just a fun you know atmosphere um, for me to be a part of were you a Braves fan or did you did you grow up admiring the Yankees with some of that memorabilia <laughs> uh yeah I mean obviously you have to the Braves and uh, I guess it was the Cubs because of WGN they were the ones on TV so I watched a lot of those but uh you know I was a Yankees fan and I had you know posters and stuff on the wall and um I don't know. I guess I could say I was a fan of both, but the Yankees, I mean, they were definitely uh, you know, a team that I followed. Oh, who was on the posters, man? <laughs> I, for specifically, I remember um, I had this one. It was just like of all the championships. And it was like, of you know, of all the year, all the years or whatnot. Um, it may still be in my room. I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, it's just uh, I had some like a Yankees uh, played around my little light switch. Um so, I don't know, just had some team Yankee stuff in there. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was definitely – it was cool getting traded over to the Yankees. Very nice. So, Clay, one thing that we're starting here, and we've kind of done it a few times here, for every guest that, that comes on the podcast, we wrap it up by giving the guest a chance to ask something to an upcoming guest of the podcast. So, we're going to tell you the name of um, – an upcoming guest that's going to be coming on the show here in the very near future, you're going to have a chance to quickly come up with a question to ask them. So we will, uh, we'll save that question and, and relay it to them when they appear on the pod. Problem is it's a fairly new feature and we had some scheduling quirks. So we unfortunately do not have a question for you from a prior guest, but got to thinking here and he doesn't know it. We're, we're, we're about to do this, but our producer, Dan Rourke, is one of essentially the faces of Yankees Twitter. And I know you know what Yankees Twitter has really said about you since coming over from New York. You said you're, you know, your wife has shown you some of these tweets and just the love that Yankees Twitter has, has given you. Dan Rourke's one of the faces here. So I want to give Dan an opportunity to... I guess represent Yankees Twitter here, have them come together. And Dan, as 
one of the front men of Yankees Twitter, if you all had that one question to ask Clay Holmes, well, now's your chance, man. What would you ask Clay Holmes with one question? Uh, well, I already professed my love for him before, and it's quite well known how much I and Yankees Twitter am a fan of you. Um, I feel like we've covered a lot of like the analytics stuff here. So I have a question that I'm curious about. I know a lot of people are kind of curious about. You had obviously a lot more sh- uh, facial hair with, with Pittsburgh. You had a, a nice, some nice hair and, and you know, kind of a mullet a little bit. Was, uh, is it tough getting rid of that? Like, is it worth it? I know you said, you know, it was dope being traded over to the Yankees and stuff. Like, is it that big of a deal? Yankees facial hair policy? Like, what's your whole opinion on that? That's a good question. Um, my first thought when I got, you know, traded over, I was actually in a target when I got the call. But, um, I, grow, I mean, coming up with the Pirates, that was just kind of our policy. We had to have short hair and um, and a clean-shaven face. So, obviously, my first thing was like, man, you know, I'm getting away from the Pirates, but I'm still – there's still something that's lingering on because it's just, I had to, had to do it for so much, but I think because of that, I'm, I was kind of used to it. Um, and so it doesn't really bother me. Maybe that's you know part of why I grew my hair out and had a beard just because I didn't have to shave anymore, but uh, it doesn't really bother me. You know, it was a little bit of attachment more to the hair than the beard, but um, you know, it's uh, I don't really see it as a, a chore, I guess you would say. Yeah. Well, some I have noticed is, and you might be in luck with this, I feel like the better you are, the more lenient they are. So, like, after your performance last year, bro, like, you might be able to – because, I mean, like, Garrett Cole's hair is, like, borderline. And I think – I'm totally cool with that. Like, I think he'd have his hair as long as possible. And, like, CeCe, for example, they let him have – CeCe had almost a full beard at times. So, like, I feel like depending on how good you are is how, like, lenient they'll be. So, like, you might be able to have a beard here soon. I don't know. Yeah. Thanks, man. Well, this is uh, so a couple of big names there. Maybe a couple more years I'll get to that spot. <laughs> I don't know if a half season half half season is gonna put me in that. <laughs> yeah, Dan, awesome job, man. Right on the spot, guys. I I didn't tell Dan that that was coming, and I don't think you guys knew that either. It was kind of in a, a, a bind here, but I I thought that was really appropriate because Dan Work is a, a big Clay Holmes uh, a fan. Man. I don't want to use fanboy, but I mean, man, the 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 faction on Twitter, Clay, it is there. It is awesome. Um, so. Yankees Twitter stand up here on toe in the slab. All right. So one of our uh, upcoming guests here, it's actually someone from your own organization. It is Rachel Balkovec who will be managing the Yankees minor league team in Tampa. She's going to be the first female manager at any level in pro affiliated ball. And she's going to be our guest coming up here on toe in the slab. So what question do you have for Rachel, Rachel Balkovec clay? Yeah, I've listened to a few of these episodes and, this is the pot in the spot where I was, uh, I was the most anxious about is being put on the spot like this. Uh, I love it. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously she's very, um, when, you know, what she's doing is very admirable. Um, just her, uh, kind of the, just the courage and just kind of the, um, the, you know, trailblazing that she's doing. Um, you know, I think, uh, I'd say what, for me, a question, if I could ask her, because she's uh, she'll be the she's the first manager of an MLB team, right? Am I correct? Yeah. That she'll be a manager this next year. Yes. Yeah. Um, she's a she's a trailblazer without a doubt. Um, I would say you know where um, kind of where did the passion for um, just kind of baseball come into play? Um, obviously, it's very you know you know everybody respects what she's doing, and it's uh, 
I mean, it's pretty amazing. Um, just kind of what you know, the just the new territory that she's bringing in. But I'm kind of just uh, curious about where, like, how far back does it go where baseball um, kind of became a passion, and you know, why why is it baseball that um, that she loves? Dig it. I like it. I like simple. it a lot. Yeah, simple, simple and direct. Yeah. And I'm sure that'll that'll yeah. get her to dig in a little bit because now mm-hmm. I want to know. I kind of want to know what, yeah. what makes her tick. Yeah. So that, yeah. that's a good one. We'll be saving that one for sure. Clay, this was awesome. Terrific insight. I don't think uh, a lot of people peel the, the layers back with their uh, with their pitching and specific pitches quite like you have done here for us. So we really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully you're not facing them too much longer, but have some mercy on those high school hitters, will you? Maybe not the hitters, uh, the hitters, but I'm a little more worried about the catcher. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, appreciate it, guys. It's, uh, it's been good talking and um, look forward to talking, talking again soon. Just as a fan, right, a pitching observer, Clay's talking about his sinker here and how he may, you know, throw it differently, but also talking about he kind of went cold turkey on giving up his curveball. It wasn't like he was throwing at 10% of the time when he was with the Pirates. I think it was around a 20, 25% usage rate. So he, he literally went cold turkey only a couple of weeks after joining the Yankees with the curveball. David, have you ever just given up on a pitch, decided to drop it completely? And, and do you, you know, for lack of a better term, like, do you feel weird when you're on the mound and you're thinking to yourself, oh, I could maybe go to this. Well, no, wait. It's not part of my arsenal anymore. What What is that like? Have you heard stories like that? Have you experienced it firsthand? I have back in the minor leagues when I was a closer. I was a reliever. I was supposed to be the heir apparent to Dan Quisenberry when I was in the Royals organization. So I actually was a closer in AAA. And that's exactly what I did. I pitched from the stretch exclusively. I lost my windup. I lost my curveball. I lost my splitter and I just threw fastball slider and things really improved for me there. Actually, my career on the minor league level took a big turnaround at that point by simplifying things. And it's much easier to do when you're pitching one inning at a time, maybe facing three or four or five hitters at a time on any given outing. So it's much easier as a reliever to do that as a starting pitcher, much more difficult. If you want to get three times through the order, you need a little more variety. You need probably that third uh, weapon or that third pitch that, a lot of pitching coaches talk about to, to mix it up and give different looks and, and remain unpredictable. So, yeah, it's a classic story of uh, the difference between a relief pitcher and a starter and the mentality and, and what works for relievers is that simplified formula to just break it down to two pitches, own them, get in the strike zone immediately when you come out of the bullpen, which is the toughest thing for a reliever. You Sometimes there's men on base. It's usually a high leverage situation later in the game for a guy like Clay Holmes. You better be on right now. So that simplified approach really can work for, for guys like Clay Holmes. Did you guys hear the subtle drops from Clay throughout the interview, how he you know listens to the show and how he was uh, getting a little antsy about the new feature and stuff like that? I think, uh, hey, 20 episodes in, I think we have a little small pitching following in. That's what we wanted, right? I mean, that's, this is where you go. This is the toe in the slab, uh, you know, uh, podcast. That's what we are. We, you know, if, if you're not into pitching, don't come here. Because you know? <laughs> this, this is what we do here. We're going we're gonna to break it down, peel back some layers. And we even get to get into some blitz ball there. And, you know, I'm, I know I'm a little biased and everybody talks about, you know, everyone wants to talk about the game. The game of baseball needs more action. You need more balls in play. 
I, I understand that, but I like a good strikeout. There's nothing wrong with a good strikeout, especially, especially when you, you know, when you have these wicked pitches that these pitchers are throwing nowadays, some of these guys are throwing some nasty, nasty stuff out there. You know, the only thing I can tell you is from my childhood, one of the most memorable at bats I remember was watching Reggie Jackson strike out against Bob Welsh in the world series, right? You know, back when the Dodgers and Yankees uh, squared off, it was about a nine minute at bat at least. And, you know, the young rookie flamethrower, Bob Welsh blowing it by Reggie Jackson and Reggie swinging from his heels, almost falling down. There was no action, but it was, it was complete drama. It was, it was one of the most memorable at bats I, I can remember, you know, it, it was a strikeout. So, so there you go. A nine pitch battle to end game two of the 1978 world series. So you can look it up on YouTube, Bob Welch versus Reggie Jackson, high drama. All right, this week in pitching history, James, what do you have for us? All right. Well, first of all, uh, this is coming out on Tuesday, February 22nd. So a quick shout out and happy 33rd birthday to former guest and friend of the show, Chris Bassett of the A's. So a little tip of the cap there, Chris. But this week in pitching history, 50 years ago, Friday. So that's February 25th, 1972. Left-hander Steve Carlton is traded from the Cardinals to the Phillies for right-hander Rick Wise. Now, Rick Wise was an all-star in 1971, and he's gone down in history for his game from that season when he hit two home runs and pitched a no-hitter against the Big Red Machine, one of the best single-game performances in baseball history. An all-star pitcher, good pitcher. The Phillies get Steve Carlton, who was a a good pitcher, who made a couple all-star teams with the Cardinals, He goes to the Phillies and becomes an absolute legend, one of the greatest pitchers of all time on the short list for the best left-handed pitchers of all time. That first season in 1972, the Phillies were awful. They were 59 and 97, but Carlton went 27 and 10. He had a 197 ERA in 346 and a third innings pitched, and he won the first of his four Cy Young Awards. Little uh, new school analytics thing. 12.1 12.1 war that season. The two Cy Young winners this year, former guests Robbie Ray and Corbin Burns, 12.3. So he basically had two Cy Young award seasons wrapped up in one wow. in that year. He's one of the greatest pitchers in Phillies history. Carlton was with the Phillies for 15 seasons, and he led them to their first World Series title in 1980. One of the big headline trades in recent or somewhat recent baseball history uh, 50 years ago this week. David, you ever meet him? I have. Yes. Uh, you know, I was actually, he was still active when I broke in. So it was sort of, it was at the tail end of his career when I was a rookie coming up. So yeah, we kind of, kind of touched a little bit and I got a chance to watch him. Yeah. You know, he was, you know, it wasn't the, the same uh, pitcher in his prime that he was at the end, but the, the just a wicked slider, that left-handed lefty slider, one of the all-time great breaking balls in the history of the game. He used to get full swings and then hit guys in the back foot and right-handed batters or right-handed batters would take full swings at a slider and then try to get their back leg out of the way. Cause it was going to take off their kneecap. I mean, that's how, that's how much of a buzzsaw his slider was from the left and left side. So yeah, you're right, James, you talk about a short list of greatest left-handed pitchers of all time. Yeah. Randy Johnson and Steve Carlton, <laughs> you're at the top of the list. Pretty much <laughs> pitching ninja swords before they even knew what they were. 
before the blacksmith shop was even established by pitching ninja with those swords yeah um all right guys three up three down each of us will give a news item here around the game that we deserve think that we deserve you know a little a little light shed on it and before we get to three up three down there are some big news items out of the sports collectibles world tops recently announced that they're going to be auctioning a one of one tops 1952 mickey mantle card nft on open it's going to happen march 1st 1 p.m eastern time open is an nft auction platform where people can make bids to win highly prized nft collectibles the one of one nft is a stunning recreation of the classic tops baseball card complete with video of historical imagery and memorabilia that showcase and celebrate mickey mantle's legacy Cool fact about the card being used in the NFT front and back are, are from an actual card in the original 1952 release that was digitally scanned and pulled from Topps' digital archive specifically to be used in this one-of-one one NFT. Even cooler, the winner of the auction is going to have a rare opportunity to have a 30-minute video interview with Mickey Mantle's sons. That's Danny and David Mantle. So this is the very first NFT that's featured, uh, uh, the, the very first NFT featured collectible in the Topps Timeless series. It's a new collection celebrating the company's most iconic baseball cards through exclusive premium one-of-one NFT collectibles. Auction again, kicking off March 1st, 1 p.m. Eastern. It's live for three days. It ends at 1 p.m. on March the 4th. Any bid placed in the last 10 minutes of the auction will extend the auction by an additional 10 minutes. For more information on the historic release, visit TopsTimeless.com. Again, TopsTimeless.com. Three up, three down, guys. James, let's lead it off with you. What do you have for us this week? All right, I'll I'll lead it off. Uh, Jason Stark of The Athletic had a good piece uh, today on, uh, on Monday when we were recording this about the shift. And... He's saying hitters hate the shift, but what would happen if baseball banned shifts? Maybe not what you think. Talks to a lot of people around the game, hitters, managers, pitchers, minor league managers, where they've experimented with rules regulating the shift. Uh, There was one good line from Freddie Freeman. I'll just read it right here. He says, Freddie said, everyone's like, just hit the ball the other way. Uh, I'm trying to cover five pitches. They're all moving. One's like 98 miles an hour. And I'm just going to be able to do whatever I want and hit a ball to the left side. It's not that easy, but I just think it's interesting because there's been so much talk over the last, I say 10 years, while shifts have been proliferating throughout the sport. You know, how do we legislate this? Do we get this out of the game? Do we limit the number of shifts you could do? Do we outright ban shifts? Do we put, you can only have, two fielders on each side of the infield dirt or whatever. If you create a rule like that, what is the outcome? What are the unintended consequences of that? Will it actually achieve the thing that people want out of it, which would be more balls in play, the the lefty slugger, whale and bale type of thing. We want less of that and more of the contact oriented stuff. Would an outright ban on shifts even do that? And we're, we're not sure. So it was, it, was a, it was a really good piece and uh, a good dive into um, how much shifting has really grown throughout the game and still does. Even every year, it's like there's even more shifts. 
So yeah, Jason, Jason Stark. Yeah, does a great job with it. One of the great writers. And he did his research on that. So, yes, it's a great lead right there, James, to to go read that. And we'll be discussing it. You know, there, there's always a topic that comes up on Ban the Shift and whether, you know, they talk to also about feet, feet on the dirt. You know, maybe not ban the shift, but keep them on the infield dirt that you can't have that sort of rover that second baseman way out in the short right field, almost like, uh, you know, the, the monster, the monster back in, in softball, you know, you see, see that guy out there in short in the short outfield. So that one might, might have a little bit more merit, but nonetheless, I, I agree completely, James. That's a, it's a great read by a great writer. I saw the headline. I saw the story and I saw that great quote by Freddie Freeman. I have not yet read the article. It's definitely on my to-do list. And I have a higher appreciation of how difficult it could be even for a major leaguer, someone who I absolutely cannot relate to in any way. I do have more sympathy when I hear, oh, just go the other way with it after participating in the John Boy Blitzball battle for $10,000 because it is extremely tough facing some of these high velocity pitches that are just moving at a rate which you may not even be able to see with the naked eye. So um, yeah, I want to yeah, see the rep soda machines on those blitz ball pitchers. I definitely <laughs> yeah. want to see some metrics, horizontal, vertical movement on those pitches. Wow. Just I think we're getting there. I think we're getting there in the, in the JM warehouse. So uh, it, it, I feel like it's coming soon. Uh, David three up three down for you. What do you have? Uh, you know, I, to, to, you know, uh, for me, you know, we, there's so many different directions you can go. I know James, you know, brought up the, the rules changes, you know, there's, there's labor negotiations going on now that we could talk about, you know, there, there's, there's so many different things, uh, you know, uh, that, that you can go down, you know, the, the, that sort of a road. Uh, I still believe that they're within the framework to get a deal done, but the longer this goes on, the more precarious it becomes. And then you, you get to a point where you're going to start missing some games at the first part of the season. So that's where we are now. And, and, and this week is a really important week. You know, you just hope that, you know, that they stay in the room and then that they keep talking and that there's not this sort of gamesmanship going on. And I really believe that the gamesmanship has been on the owner side more there. There's almost like uh, if you look at, um, there used to be a thing. Dean Smith had the four corner stall back in the seventies and eighties at the university of North Carolina. That's what it feels like the owners are doing. It's, it's, it's like, they're just passing the ball around or trying to avoid action, you know, and, and get the players to negotiate against themselves. It's kind of the, is my read on it. I would like to see them some good faith bargaining going on. I don't think I've seen a lot of good faith bargaining going on as of yet. I think that's always the goal is that, you know, to have real, genuine, good faith bargaining going on at the table. We hope that's what happens this week. I don't think we've seen a lot of that so far up to this point. I think you answered my question with this because I was going to say, hey, is this the week we've kind of been waiting for? I think we've all would have been a little surprised if uh, a deal was reached between February 15th and you know February 20th. I think you would have genuinely been surprised by that. But I think this is crunch time, right? We've been talking about this week for almost three months now, no? It really has been. And the fact that there's been weeks that have gone on without talking, it lets you know what the strategy is. I mean, there was a high school game back in the 70s when I grew up in Kansas that was six to four because it was a stall tactic. There was no shot clock. That's what this feels like on the ownership side that they're, they're just, uh, they're passing the ball around, you know, they're, 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 uh, 
you know, Phil Ford's uh, drive-in addition, drive-in addition, and then nobody's even thinking about making a shot or even taking a shot. You know, to use that as a metaphor is kind of the four-corner stall going on. That's the strategy on the owner's side. Yeah, it's frustrating for the players. Uh, as I said, you know, you, you, I hope that that log jam gets broken because the framework is there for, for an agreement to be had right now. It's not like they're, they're talking apples and oranges. It's not like, uh, you know, they have two completely different frameworks and they can't agree on anything. It's there to be had if there's some real concessions to be talked about and, and, to, and to, to have some good faith going on there at the table. And as this is fully playing out, I think a lot of fans are saying to themselves, I think a lot of the hardcore baseball fans are probably saying, hey, let me know when it's done, right? The, I, I honestly believe that if you're outside of the circles that we're kind of in and others who are in the industry where we're constantly talking about it, I feel like that casual fan that everyone's afraid of maybe losing, so to speak, if games are lost, I don't necessarily know if they're cognizant of maybe what's transpiring at the root level this week with all this stuff. But I do think there's a lot of fans that normally wouldn't have gotten jacked up about college baseball starting this past weekend who had a, a interest increase in terms of their, their level of interest in college baseball, period. I, I saw a lot of people say just that on Twitter. I kind of tuned in a couple games. I had games on in the background. I had, you know, the, the Cal game on against Houston. I had, uh, Texas on in the background as well, but there was a big story making waves. And this is kind of where I'm in with three up, three down about what Vanderbilt was doing. And it was in their series against Oklahoma state. All nine Vandy players were wearing electronic wristbands that displayed the pitch type and the location that was being called for that pitch. And it was coming from the dugout. And we heard that it was designed to improve pace of play, but also it eliminates the catcher really ever having to put signs down for his pitcher. David, what did you make of that? What do you think of the technology? And do you think it could work in Major League Baseball eventually? I find it interesting. You know, Joe Girardi had talked about that. I mean, they do it in the NFL with the quarterbacks. You know, they call the play in. The quarterback's got a mic in the helmet. Um, it's something worth looking at. I think the – a lot of the old school baseball guys are, are having problems with pitch calling in and of itself. Uh, do the catchers learn? Do the pitchers learn how to work a game? Are they allowed to make their own decisions? Is everything just decided for them? Hey, throw this pitch. Uh, do they have the, the ability to shake it off and say, no, I'm, I'm on the mound. I've got the ball in my hand. I want that veto power. So what happens then? You step off the mound and push on your watch and change the signal or you know, according to the electronics, or there's still going to be a place in the game for shaking off a signal and then giving the old school fingers down kind of a thing. And the infielders are, are going to have to adjust it to that as well. So there, there's a whole layer of arguments and debates to be had around this topic, but I, I'm happy they're trying new things. I, you know, I have a growth mentality. I'm, you guys know that I, I love the analytics. I love to learn. I love to, I wish I could have had some of those toys to use. You know, it's a worthwhile project. To, to, to see uh, if this can eliminate some of the uh, technology technology espionage, espionage that we've seen over the last, I guess that's a good way to put it, right? From from the trash can banging of the, of the Astros, is, that's where this all started, right? I mean, that's, how do we counter that? And, you know, what if there's hidden cameras in the ballparks? Uh, how do you stop that? How do you police it? Uh, this, is, this is one way to counter it. So, yeah, I, I have no problems with experimenting with these sorts of things. How it shakes out, 
and, and all the questions around development and whether you're allowing kids to learn is another, is another debate. Yeah. I think it's something that if you're a, a big fan of baseball, a, a hardcore fan who's going to watch anything, I think it's definitely something you want to keep an eye on. And it could possibly be one of those things where they work the bugs out at the collegiate level for major league baseball. It's kind of free testing for, for major league baseball. So just something to keep an eye on. Colleges are leading the way in innovation, right? I mean, it, 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 the, the biomechanics laboratories in some of these universities are amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the technology that's afforded at these learning institutions is 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 a foundation to to really uh, do some things like this, some experimentation, and then follow it up and see what works and what doesn't work. And that's why you're seeing so many of these guys getting hired by major league teams right out of college to the big leagues to be a pitching coach because they are at the forefront of innovation right now. Hey, I want to give a big shout out and thank Clay Holmes for coming on the show here this week. We thank Clay. We uh, wish him well here as 2022 season is hopefully right around the corner. Big thanks to our great producer, as always, uh, Blitzball superstar Dan Rourke. You can catch him in action on the JM Warehouse YouTube channel. I think my first round game's coming up later this week, the Southpaws against the uh, the Average Joes on JM Warehouse Blitzball Battle. So uh, be sure to... Check out Dan, uh, perhaps myself as well. Watch me walk, strike out, or get hit by a pitch, whatever you want. Uh, be sure to rate, review, subscribe here to Tone the Slab. It is the best way to support, uh, support the show here. And a reminder, new episodes drop in each and every Tuesday. Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn is a production of John Boy Media. We'll talk to you next week, everybody.